Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show again. It is August 14th. It's Monday afternoon, and we have a special supplemental edition of the Kyle Serafin Show for you this afternoon. I think you're really going to enjoy this. This is a long-form interview that I did with Allison Guerriero, who is the former girlfriend of Charles McGonigal, who we're expecting to see plea tomorrow, uh, a guilty plea, probably a sweetheart deal that's coming his way. He's the former special agent in charge of counterintelligence at the New York field office. This will be a uh, the highest-ranking FBI agent ever to plead guilty to something along these lines. And uh, there's a lot of questions that we had about who this guy was, what the story was, how in the world was he living a double life where he had a wife down in Maryland and a, a girlfriend up in New York where he was working. And I think we got to the bottom of some of those, and I think it leaves some questions out there. But plenty of interesting information. I think you folks are really going to enjoy uh, hearing from Allison in her own words, giving her a chance to defend it. She's been listed as a, a scorned ex-lover and an angry mistress and a bunch of other things. And that was not what we found to be true. Uh, an interesting character. So I hope you enjoy this. And as you do so, let's just say a quick thank you to my friends over at Catholic Vote. If you guys want to, if you, you heard it this morning, uh, go ahead and sign up for the loop. Every morning that you don't sign up is a morning that you're missing it. Go to catholicvote.org, catholicvote.org. Sign up for the loop with your email and your name and your zip code. Very easy. And you will get their email uh, every morning at about six o'clock uh, Eastern time, five o'clock here in the central time zone. And it'll prepare you for your day. If you missed the Kyle Serafin show, you might want to be able to look into your email and see what's going on in the world. They do a great job of it. All right. So stand by. I think you folks are really going to appreciate this. Her name is Allison Guerriero. Guerriero. I think I got your name right. Allison. Did I get it right? You got it right. I nailed it. It took me five tries, folks. This is our fifth try on this. But we also have had some connection problems. We're going to do our best to make sure this uh, this internet holds. And Allison is described in the Daily Beast as the enraged ex-lover of former FBI top official. So that's going to be a really interesting story. I think we want to hear the real side of the story, as we know the mainstream press is want to take some serious embellishments. We're going to hear the other side of the story about Charles McGonagall, who was the top counterintelligence official at the New York field office, which is probably one of the biggest CI jobs in the FBI, which makes it one of the biggest CI jobs in the United States. And we're going to hear the story about who this guy is. So let's let's start with who Allison is, who's telling us this story. Allison, I'm going to have you uh, get this story out again. We're going to talk about where you came from and uh, and where you grew up. And we're going to get a little picture of who you are as a person before we get into this bizarre thing that you found yourself wrapped up in. So tell me where you're from. All right. Well, my name is Allison Guerriero. I was born and grew up in uh, Florham Park, New Jersey. Um, I had great parents, great grandparents, aunts, uncles, tons of cousins, uh, younger sister and uh, two aunts who lived with us because my mother's parents had died when she was engaged. So um, they raised her two youngest sisters who were about um, 11 and 13 at the time. And then I was born right away. It was an idyllic childhood. I feel sorry for people who don't get to be me. <laughs> we were always down the shore or my grandfather's house where he had an enormous garden and like two acres for us to just run around on. I, I went to high school in a convent in Convent Station, New Jersey. I'm very, very, very traditional Catholic. Um, a big part of my life, probably the most important 
important part of my life is um, attending traditional Latin mass, which I just wanted to throw in there because uh, take that FBI. <laughs> <laughs> it's so of course it is. Uh, yeah, I noticed the I noticed the cross early on. So you go to uh, you're a Latin Mass Catholic, and of course you've been following yeah. the news that the FBI is is going on. We just got some recent news, in fact, that they uh, they were doing it in multiple field offices. That probably doesn't surprise you. But it doesn't surprise me. At, at this point, nothing probably does. A bit. You said a big part of your life is your Catholic faith. Yes. That's got to be kind of a shock with the way that you've been portrayed in the media just well. So let's let's get into the beginning of uh, kind of how people have have thrown you into this strange scenario. And it didn't have anything to do with what you did. I read somewhere that that uh, Charlie McGonigal, who was your boyfriend, came home and met your parents and was acting like a regular guy. So tell us about how you met the top guy that ended up being the highest indicted FBI official in American well, history. I was friends with the assistant director, uh, William Sweeney. OK. Uh, name's Bill. So Bill and I was volunteering for a law enforcement foundation. Um, so I dealt with Bill very, very, very often. Um, and the heads of all of the, S the entire SES in New York, I dealt with very often um, or throughout the country. And uh, Bill had introduced me to Charlie, but I, I just can't remember the exact circumstance. But I do remember I had written... Um, I had put together some grant packets for Charlie's agents, some FBI agents. I'm not going to say their names, but, sure. you know, one had uh, kidney cancer and died. Another had a child with cancer. We gave them, I think, uh, five and 10,000 each. Um, and then I got the other foundations involved. So I'm, I'm good at that. I'm good at networking. And, um, you know, Bill um, introduced me to Charlie at some point. I, I just can't quite remember when. What, what sort of work do you do that, that you came across these guys? I'm a security contractor, but mm -hmm. this was a volunteer job. That's what so, I was getting at. Okay. Yeah. And nobody gets paid. This is a wonderful foundation. There's no overhead. Everything is, you know, donated. Um, and for work, I don't like to talk too much about that because then nobody's going to, I've got NDAs and everything and nobody will trust me or hire me ever again, but I'm a really good investigator. I harden soft targets, uh, sell some equipment for you know crime scenes and just uh preparedness in the event of a major attack uh ballistic resistant sort of things and i don't know i'm i, I i'm good at investigating so i so, mean i, I like the guy jobs the best and so needless to say you're in the circle of people that are either buying equipment and or using the equipment that you're talking about the different types of uh you know, this is the sphere that you're very familiar with you speak the language i know we've texted a little bit i know you speak the language yeah so so you yeah, meet I'm an agent um yep. i have a cousin who's an atf agent and he kept and he and his friends at atf kept like hounding me go to atf school go to dea school i'm like i don't want to be an agent i like what i'm doing so um, I like being a salesman and, uh, you know, that's basically what I am. And I'm and I like investigating. But as a contractor, I did not want to be tied down to the government. Yeah. So you didn't want to be tied down to the government. I think that's uh, that's probably a noble thought. So as you as you're involved in, in these two different businesses, one helping out uh, charitable work around law enforcement, the other one being selling equipment and, and doing investigations as a contractor, uh, you're somehow come across the, the path. Doesn't really matter how. How did uh, Charlie McGonigal end up being someone that you were involved in romantically? Like, what was the path that led to that? He was just enamored with me. 
Um, I had done a grant for uh, one of his agents, a flashbang had actually, um, the guy had uh, misfired it, or uh, mishandled it, I'm sorry, and it went off in the garage at 26 bed. He had a very serious injury. Young, brand new agent, baby agent, and um, didn't have a whole lot of money, and there were a lot of out-of-pocket expenses, so I wrote a grant for them, and Charlie asked if he could take me to lunch in person to finally meet me, to thank me, which is what we did. And he drove out around 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday to Short Hills, New Jersey, when he should have been working, to take me to lunch. And one of the first things out of his mouth was, I'm getting divorced. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he said, I'm in the middle of a divorce. Because I asked him if he had kids. He's like, yeah, but I'm in the middle of a divorce and I live up here right now. Um, I really didn't question it. At first I felt sorry for him. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. He had actually, I mean, people have asked me, why didn't I question his divorce story when we had dated for 18 months? And the reason is because Charlie had told me that in the state of Maryland, and I don't know if this is true or not, that it is required by law that a couple filing for divorce be separated for a year. So that was why I never questioned anything. Um, he was really never in Maryland where his wife and children were. He was always in New York. Maybe he went back at most twice a month for like a night, maybe two. Um, what was his job at that time when you first met? I was encouraging him to go more often to see the kids. When you guys first met, what was the job he was working? Because I know he took a couple of promotions over the last couple of years, like many senior executives. In, he had just arrived in New York as special agent in charge of counterintelligence. Okay. And what year was that? Was that 16? No, we met, he was, he arrived about a week or two before the presidential election, late October. Uh, I met him, I think, May or June. Um, and it was around this time of year, August, September, that things really started heating up. He was really pursuing me, asking me if he could take me out, wanted to come and pick me up at my father's house. My mother had uh, died a few months before I met Charlie. Um, but my father really liked them. They got along well. They were smoking cigars together. I mean, they. my dad loved him. You said your your father really got along really well with them and they were spending time together. So he would come over yeah. and, and smoke cigars and hang out at your dad's house? Oh, he was always giving my dad cigars. Um, he gave him a cutter, a cigar cutter from Smith & Walensky once. It was one of his favorite restaurants. Charlie used to brag that his picture was on the wall at Smith and Molensky. I'm not Smith and Molensky. I'm sorry. Sparks. Not Smith and Molensky. Sorry, Smith and Molensky. <laughs> Sparks. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because when they had sold their house in Maryland a couple of years ago, I looked at the listing and I saw that picture on the wall of his study, along with a picture of Charlie with Prime Minister Rama of Albania. And I immediately recognized that photograph because he had texted it to me during the trip when we first began dating. Yeah. So you've got you've got no red flags. He's pursuing you. He told no you he's divorced. Flag. He's he's living in New York. He's making buddies with your dad. These all seem like up and up things to do. Oh, we've got like 50 mutual friends. My business partner at the time wanted me to get married to him. He loved him. It was impossible not to like Charlie. I mean, if you ask anybody who's socialized with him. Now I know that there are people he's worked with who don't think highly of him and didn't get along with him. But um, in New York, what I observed 
um, was a very uh, fun, engaging, charismatic, friendly, kind. You know, just he had the t- he had that X factor that that you can't put your finger on, but it just draws people to you. And Charlie has Charlie has that. Charlie is a very, very, very gifted person socially. Uh, conversely, I think he's probably suffering from narcissistic personality disorder or possibly histrionic personality disorder. He has a lot of childhood trauma and um, it shows in hindsight, it shows he tries too hard to be a people pleaser. Was he an anxious guy? He was pretty anxious, but, but not anxious, like out of control. I mean, he was always distracted. Didn't necessarily seem he was distracted with work. It seemed like he was distracted with Agron, who is a former Albanian intelligence official who lives in Leonia, New Jersey, and is named in the indictments. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, uh, Agron, who I've never met, is uh, being cooperative with the government. He uh, he would sometimes brag to me that he was on the phone with Prime Minister Rama. I kind of felt like, uh, okay, I'm at Trump National and the president of this country is right over there. So I'm sitting on a So he, he was excited about talking to the Albanian prime minister. Yes. And, and in, he thought I'd be impressed. But you weren't. Well, not really. I mean, I, the most impressed I ever was, was when I met a Marine who was one of the frozen chosen. So... I don't get impressed very easily. I mean, you really have to have gone through some deep shit for me to to respect you. I mean, I've, I've got a friend whose son lost both arms and both legs in Iraq. Now, you think I'm going to be impressed by Charlie McGonigal? You know, I mean, he's what has he ever sacrificed or done that was brave and dangerous other than enrich himself? I guess that's the question, right? Because I hear a lot about how FBI agents are so noble and they do such great things. Did he endure any great hardship that you're aware of? That Charlie had? Mm-hmm. Not financial. Um, I know that um, his parents were unwed teenage alcoholics when he was about four or five. His mother had told him she wished that she could have had an abortion, which is a theme that I think had gone on throughout his life he never really talked about his childhood other than to say all his parents ever did was fight and he would always leave the house and go find friends and he couldn't wait to get out of there interesting so but it's weird because he also tells little yeah he also he also tells me little bits and pieces about his mother or he would um and he was constantly trying to please her which kind of makes sense now because he was really always trying to please me and Possibly his wife. I don't know. I've never observed their relationship. And to be honest with you, I don't even know if they ever really were separated. They could have been. How would I know? I don't believe anything he says. So Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of where I'm getting at. We've got a man basically that was lying to you at least some of the time. He was lying to his colleagues probably a lot of the time. And when he's telling you things like the fact that he was talking to the Albanian prime minister, did that make any sense to you based on what you know about SESers, people who are senior executives in federal law enforcement? At, at that time, at that time, it did. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I was at IACP in Philadelphia 
a couple weeks after Charlie had returned from the Albania trip, or maybe a couple months, Chris Ray had just been named director, and Chris Ray addressed a crowd, and I was there in the audience. Uh, Charlie was not there. Um, Chris Ray had referred to Charlie as, you know, extending a hand to our NATO allies in the Balkans and solidifying relationships. So Chris thought that this was all well and good and great. And I'm sure Bill Sweeney thought the same thing, as well as the rest of the swinging dicks on the seventh floor. So they had the impression that you think that they thought everything was okay with him going on this trip, that that wasn't alerting or surprising to them. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is that Mattathias Schwartz had broke the story that it was the British who had first um, encountered Charlie in London in 2018 when he was still the SAC. Um, And I, I remember that trip because I had a double mastectomy and he flew right back to Newark airport from London and came right to the hospital where I was. Uh, and then, you know, pretty much took care of me throughout that recovery. Um, but one thing I will say is that, uh, he cried a lot when, when I, I, I never even cried over it, but, um, he, I told him I was having the double mastectomy and he just cried. And then we were out with his co-defendant, Sergey Shestakov in the Southern case, the New York case. And uh, Sergey had a person in his life who had also had a double mastectomy that he brought. And, um, and then Charlie starts crying again. And I'm like, would you stop crying? Like, I'm not even crying. And this is happening to me. So he earned the name Sack Crybaby from uh, my other agent friends. <laughs> Which uh, I never told him about. But did they, did he him. cry around them too? You think, or he was just you no. just told him? No, he only cried around me. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he's cried around other people. He did have an agent. He told me he cried in the hospital room. The agent died from kidney cancer. It was end stage, and it was not caught. Uh, I think until maybe like two months before the guy died, and that was sad. Um, so you know, I but. Um, One thing I've noticed about Charlie is that as sociopathic as I believe he is, he does not like to look at any suffering. He can't like, uh, if I had like a blood clot in my drains after the, uh, after the mastectomy, um, he would just turn away from it and it would like make him cry. Like anything, anything, he's very queasy. Like, um, like, you know how, uh, you know how the Zetas in Mexico will do that chainsaw thing and they'll cut people up? They'll chop people up? Mm-hmm. Okay. Charlie was never able to even discuss anything like that. And I was having a conversation about that. Um, just a, a big hit in Mexico. And then they, you know, disemboweled everybody and then they hung him from a bridge. And Charlie was looking at me like I was absolutely nuts. And he's like, your PC filter is off today. I'm like, what PC filter? Like, what are you new here? But, um, you know, Charlie is not as much of a realist when it comes to violence in the world. Um, he lived a very pampered life. He was, you know, on the seventh floor for God only knows how long. I mean, he was in, he was in DC, I think since 2003, he's just a headquarters guy. Um, and I had a friend of mine at, um, another agency, SES at a different agency had to bring Charlie in to consult on something that uh, they were working on. And um, he called him a pretty boy douche. <laughs> he doesn't like him. Um, I've met people who don't like him, but um, when I 
but really they're far and few between. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give credit where it's due here too. When I was sick, Charlie really took care of me. He cared a lot and he really pampered me. He would always go out in the morning and get my coffee so I wouldn't have to go out in the cold and bring it home for me. Um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, he felt terrible that we couldn't go out for my 45th birthday because Chris Ray was in town and needed to meet with him. Um, I didn't necessarily care. I was, I don't celebrate my birthday. I'm going to be 50 in a couple months. I don't even care about that. So, um, yeah, but you know, I would overhear Charlie on the phone with Eddie Rama sometimes. Um, definitely overheard him with the ADIC with Bill Sweeney. Um, other SACs, um, people down in Washington. And I think the most telling thing is that uh, he never tried to hide anything from me. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and repeat anything he said, because I, I do believe that some stuff should just stay quiet. I don't know if anything I ever overheard could have an implication that's negative on this country or other people or our assets. So um, I'm, co I'm very cognizant of that. Um, but he was careless. He left his phone around. He'd have conversations in front of me. He would tell me about work. He would tell me little gossip stories. One about a good friend of mine that I didn't want to have to know about or hear about. Um, you know, it's just, he's, and we knew 50 of the same people. So I had been here for 25, 30 years. He was new to New York. It was like, he was hanging on my coattails not the other way around i mean i was the girl i was the foundation girl that got everybody the money that he was looking for so um and i know that that's i sound like a dick self-praise is no praise but i got shit done for those guys a lot of shit and um and i would do it again so but I got involved in another grand jury into the Trump witch hunt, QWI at all anymore, because they really mishandled. Well, for starters, they emailed my subpoena. They didn't serve it to you. So they didn't serve it to me. They emailed it. Hmm. And then I called their special agent in charge and I said, is this a joke? I'm like, is somebody pulling my leg? I thought it was a joke. So you mentioned the word careless. Can you elaborate on that a little bit uh, other than leaving a phone around? Like what, what sort of personality traits, what sort of actions did you see that you would describe as careless? Having conversations in front of me. Uh, first of all, he brought me everywhere. We've got 50 mutual friends. Everybody knew I was Charlie McGonagall's girlfriend. Meanwhile, his marriage was still intact. I, I had no idea. I don't know if anybody else in New York did. Uh, I guess she eventually she figured it out or, well, I think he told her, uh, we had discussed right after Christmas of 2017 that he was going to tell her he's dating. Um, because remember I was under the impression they were separated, moving towards divorce. Um, and he, he told me he had that conversation, but I don't know if he ever did. Um, then I, uh, really found out the truth around Thanksgiving of 2018. I got an anonymous note in the mail. It was postmarked from Kensington, Maryland, which is right next to where they live. It's the town away. It's like a mile from their house. And, um, and it said, uh, I'm, I'm 
I hope you die. I'm glad you have cancer. I hope you die. And it took me a while to piece it together. And I believe that that card came from his wife, Pam. So do you think he, I mean, you're, you're going on your gut read here. You've been around a lot of people, you know, a lot of people in the world and you've, you've met human beings that have lied to you before. And now you've got a pretty clear picture. Do you think he ever had any intention of leaving his wife? Did he ever actually leave his wife? If you had to guess, if you had to put money down one way or another. I don't think so. He could have, but my gut instinct is saying no. Although he would talk to me on the phone in front of his kids or talk to the kids with me in the room. Um, you know, it didn't seem like I, I definitely, he definitely was not hiding me. I mean, we were going places together. He met my family. He met my cousins. He met my business partner. He met, you know, some of my friends and, you know, childhood friends. And it, it just, he did, he did nothing to conceal this. And then as far as meeting with Eddie Rama, I understand now that that was, um, you know, not, uh, I guess, authorized or it wasn't given FBI's blessing. But, you know, for him to keep like sending people that picture and then to frame it in his house, I'm thinking this guy's got some balls. He, yeah, some balls is right. How do you even how do you even rectify that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, also, I can't get it through my head. Speaking of balls. Can we talk about ball, his balls for a minute? <laughs> okay, so uh, when he told me, when I'm I terrified. Is this? I don't know where this is going. Pam. <laughs> oh, don't worry, it's funny. Um, so anyway, so I, you know, so I, you know, confront him about the card I got from camp, Pam, hoping that I die, and uh, he said, you know, her mother's not letting us get divorced, and you know, we're we're going to stay married, and. You know, I got to wait till her mother dies for us to get. So he's saying all this stuff about his mother-in-law. And I'm like, what do you keep your balls in your mother-in-law's purse now? So that's my, that's my Charlie has no balls story. So that that's way less uh, bad than uh, I thought it was going to be. But the, the question is, he's, he blamed it on his mother-in-law that he wouldn't get a divorce that he claimed he was getting. Yeah. He claims he was not allowed to get a divorce because his mother-in-law said so. And then Mike, gut reaction was what are you keeping your balls in your mother-in-law's purse right that's part one and then the second thing has to be is that even plausible for this guy do you, you have any belief in in the veracity of that statement no no i don't think he was ever getting married but i gotta question the wife's motives i mean pam mcgonigal had actually filed a false police report about me now she had gone to the montgomery county police uh said that I had called her, which I did, I, you know, and, you know, I, I tried to like apologize and then it got out of hand and it became very adversarial. Um, what was the apology about? Filed a police report that said I had threatened her with the, um, intent to, uh, approach her with the intent of causing bodily harm or death. Now that was a five figure you know, lawsuit I had to get into to get that cleared up. She acknowledged we never met, that I never made that threat, that all I ever did was call her up. And um, it just kind of spiraled from there. So I was outraged because it cost me so much money that I asked Charlie, because the, the, 
the legal dispute was between me and his wife. And I had said to Charlie, listen, this is how much this cost me for this lawyer. And since she did this and not me, you know, it all falls on me to pay for it. But I can't have a court document in any court indicating that I'm a violent person. I mean, I'm in the business of reducing crime, not, you know, causing it. And uh, then Charlie uh, told Pam and Pam filed another police report that I'm trying to extort them. So then I brought that over to my friend's office. He knows Charlie as well. He's a retired um, FBI SES himself. Saying your friend was a uh, retired SES and was he in the New York area? Yeah. He was somebody we socialized with. Yes, in New York. He's somebody we socialized with. Mm -hmm. uh, really great guy. And um, he was in that ilk, that, that SES ilk. And But he's also a good friend, a good personal friend, and he's always been great to me. Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, he looked it over and he's like, this is nothing. Extortion? He's like, what is she talking about? So there was this little battle between me and Pam McGonigal, which... Um, Finally, and I never got, you know, reimbursed for my legal expenses. And now in hindsight, I'm thinking, thank God. I mean, it's all blood money. I don't want their blood money. I mean, it, it's just, I, I'm, I'm glad they never reimbursed my, my legal expense. I, I, I'm completely broke. I mean, I am so up to my eyeballs in legal and medical debt because I'm in third degree burn rehab right now. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, believe me, I need the money, but I would turn it down from him. Let's talk about that money because, because that, it sounded like he lived kind of a flashy lifestyle. Is that, is that accurate from what I'm reading in the press? It is. And it's not, he okay. lives in very, very modest quarters, but expensive clothes, expensive shoes, expensive ties. Uh, you know, I, recently saw a picture of him on Instagram. His, he, they've got a face, they've got an Instagram page for their dog. It's called the one and only Tinkerbell. And Charlie's driving a, you know, Mercedes convertible. So the, the Tinkerbell is a little black, you know, poodle. Um, and I don't even know how I came across it. Somebody else had found it. And uh, so Charlie's in it, you know, and I did an article for the oh, it was the Daily Mail that found it. Yeah, so I did an article for the Daily Mail. Uh, they wanted to post an article about, uh, you know, why is Charlie's wife, you know, posting, you know, eight hundred dollars shoes and, you know, all all sorts of, you know, Chanel bags and Hermes and Gucci and all these, you know, crazy things. And they wanted to know about his daughter as well, um, and her Instagram posts. I had taken a look at both pages and I said to the, uh, you know, I, I just said, well, I'm not going to go after kids, but, um, yeah, like my revenge on ah, my revenge on Pam for filing that false police report was that article in the daily mail criticizing her materialism. And I'm sorry, but how stupid, how stupid is somebody whose husband, is under indictment for violating sanctions. It doesn't get worse than that. Why and money laundering. These are really big charges. This is a really big deal. If it were my husband, I would have eliminated each and every social media account I had. I would have probably changed my name.
I think you're hitting on the thing that that is the most bizarre about all this behavior to me. Okay. And, and help me out if I'm missing this, but you said he took you around and introduced you to all of his friends. He came and hang out with your father. And he was like one of the family. He's yeah. got a wife back home that he's apparently still married to and probably was the whole time and didn't have any intention of leaving. She is, seems to be okay with whatever went on. She's out there running around uh, in expensive places and doing fancy vacations and taking Instagram pictures of her dog with, you know, uh, designer clothing on the dog. And I've seen some of these oh, pictures. Yeah, look. Designer clothes. <laughs> ah, <laughs> shit, sorry. Look, like, what kind of people are these? And how is this not a bigger story than it is? Because this is really not the biggest story in America right now, even though this guy is the guy that he is. I am under the impression that, well, the wife is kind of dumb. Like, she wouldn't know any better. I mean, she should have known better once he got arrested. But she just, she doesn't know what she's doing. I mean, she's she's like a housewife who, you know, she works for the Department of Transportation. I think she's a 14. Um, you know, and she's just like, you know, in her own little world with her kids. And the kids are really spoiled. I mean, it's just, you know, he. If, I remember one time we went shopping for his daughter. We spent like, you know, we bought, picked out a bunch of clothes for her. Uh, and I think we spent about $500. I mean, she was still in high school at the time, but it's odd because he would tell very unnecessary lies. Like we were at a retirement party for an ATF agent, uh, in September of 2017. And it's a guy whose girlfriend worked for a major fashion house. And Charlie's daughter has an interest in a career in fashion. So we spoke with my friend's girlfriend. She's my friend, too. And she said she'd be happy to set up an interview for Charlie's daughter for a summer internship. And then out of nowhere, Charlie said, oh, well, she's already been accepted to Stanford. And she was going into her her senior year of high school. She had just completed her junior year. So she wasn't even a senior at high school. And, they, and I'm like, how'd she get in? They didn't even do early admissions yet. So he would tell unnecessary lies that it got to the point where now I don't know what I believe. He told me he went to Ohio State. And then I learned they dug up some dirt on him at the New York Times. And the New York Times determined he went to Kent State. He told me that his master's degree from Johns Hopkins was in Catholic studies. And it's not. It's in like business administration or something. <laughs> I, Yeah. So... Uh, but I, and I think that was trying to try to him trying to impress me because I, I just really love being Catholic. And it, it's a I need that. I need that Catholic faith to get me through some of the stuff I've got to be subjected to professionally and personally. Well, so. cer certainly this is a trial. Like I said, having your name in the papers is weird. I, I can I can empathize with that. And how has the press been? We're going to get into like how he was even found out, because I think that's going to be the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I, I think that there's something to be said about how he got found out. And, and I'm really curious to your angle of this, because I've only read pieces in the in the post and, and some of the other uh, um, articles that have been written. But the guy is lying about things that don't matter. Seriously, don't yes. matter. Um, and, yes. and you're in, now in the press, you're out there getting stories written about you from left and right sided media. I'm sure everybody has a take on it. What is that like for your life right now as you go out there and if you Google your name, you're all over the places? Uh, this week it's amped up a little bit, uh, but um, only because of getting requests to do interviews. Um, I, but yeah, for the most part, it really hasn't impacted my life 
at all. I mean, if anything, it's enhanced my life. Do you have any idea how badly I want this guy in prison? I want the asset forfeiture to be bigger than Bernie Madoff's. Um, you know, I want the fines that will inevitably ensue to bankrupt him. I want Seth to charm. Seth needs to bill him so much in billable hours and Seth's five associates, four or five associates he's got working on this, that Charlie's going to be indentured to Seth. And I like Seth. Seth's a great lawyer. Charlie got real lucky with him. So, um, you know, and New York is a small world, so it's uh, not as busy and big of a city as people make it out to be uh, when you're moving in our circles, so or anybody's circles. So um, what I don't like is that uh, they're linking this to some sort of Trump thing, or the right is linking this to some sort of leftist thing. And the truth is, Charlie just was not political. He didn't vote for Hillary. He did not vote for Donald Trump. He hated them both. Um, and for, for the media to continue perpetuating that this had something to do with either side of the political stratum is it's wrong, it's stupid, it's irresponsible. Um, not everything in this country has to do with political division. Charlie is greedy. Charlie wants money. Charlie had said to me several times, when my kids get married, their wedding gift is going to be a down payment for their house. He said, I am going to get to the point where I earn millions of dollars. So, um, he, his allegiance was to his bank account and nothing more. It Why do you think people try to make it political? I don't know. Well, because this is the world we live in. Whatever you do is political. I've been criticized for being close with Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, people have even asked me to denounce certain things he's done or denounce him. And I will never do that to that man. Mr. Giuliani has been one of the most compassionate, loyal, kindest people I've ever met. He's given me a place to stay when my house burns down. And even before that, when I was moving apartments. I feel like I missed a story somewhere in here, and maybe you'll maybe you'll share it with us at least in brief uh, terms. You told me your house burned down, and I heard about burn recovery. Can you? What ah, was this? Yeah. Um. Yes, this was uh, February twenty first, twenty twenty one. I was at my dad's house. Um, there was a fire. Uh, oh. I, you know, they, 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 long story short, there was a house fire. I got caught in it. The entire house burns down. Everything I ever owned was incinerated. I had to buy all new clothes, just all new cosmetics. Uh, just, um, you know, uh, hair stuff, shoes, anything. You Think of everything you ever owned being gone. So that happened. And then I spent two months in the burn ICU, which um, if you want, I'll text you some pictures of that if you want to throw them up on the web on the uh on Hopefully the uh, webcast. but yeah. um, I, I i posted them on instagram i'm really you know this was a bad recovery but all of this is skin grafts um and third degree burns i was burned down to the bone and i woke up a few days later in the hospital i looked like king tut you know all wrapped up like a mummy um and you know it's very, 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 very painful. I mean, the nerve pain is just indescribable. You talk to a nerve, uh, burn patient and they will tell you that uh, there's something called allodynia, 
which um, Howard Hughes suffered from, which is why there was that scene in the Howard Hughes movie, The Aviator, of Leonardo DiCaprio sitting around totally naked. Anything that touches the nerves when they've been destroyed like that, it's uh, like uh, the scene in Marathon Man when he, when he starts, when Dustin Hoffman starts screaming. I mean, that's what it feels like. So, yeah, yes. Have, yes. But my house was not torched. There have been rumors that it was like Charlie trying to murder me to shot me. I, nothing like that. It was an accidental fire and nothing more. Um, but it's really, you know, my, my life has been extremely disrupted. It's just my mother died. Then I get the uh, 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 double mastectomy and then that turned into MRSA, into sepsis. And then I had to get the implants removed and then they had to go back in and then get removed again the second time I got sepsis. And I'm home on a pick line weighing 85 pounds at one point. And then I went to Florida for four months to recover, um, which was right after Charlie and I broke up, which was we broke up on Christmas Eve 2018. A month later, I was in Florida with uh, one of my friends from ATF and he like nursed me back to health and we had a marvelous time. I have a lot of uh, good friends down in that area of Florida and um you know, when the fire happens, uh, ev everybody came forward for me. When when I would get really lonely and depressed, Mr. Giuliani would be able to tell and he'd say, why don't you come stay here for a couple of days, you know, so you're not alone. And, you know, everybody kind of had my back. I, I had a friend around the corner, Rob and his wife, um, you know, they have me over on Christmas Eve and uh, stop by. And it's a it's very, very, very it's a very lonely recovery. Um, and uh, it was very difficult. I, I drank a lot through it. I drank, you know, that's something we should talk about because I'm going to get crucified for that. But the truth is I had a really bad binge drinking phase. I'm glad it's in the past. I never want to relive it. I am embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated. Uh, but I did those things. So I'll be accountable for them. But um, yeah, at one point I even got a DUI. And, uh, you know, it, it was not easy to overcome, but pretty much everybody I've talked to, not to excuse my own behavior, but everybody was like, you had your drink, binge drinking phase. Congratulations. I feel like saying this is something we all go through. They're like in this crew. Yeah. Um, was anyway, it, was this you know. before, during or after uh, the Charlie phase? Uh, during slash after. Okay. It was, yeah. It was a lot of stuff. My closest relative had died. Both of my cousins had children who died. My mother had died. I was really sick. Sure. And then the the betrayal for Charlie, that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. But it wasn't just Charlie. It was the current ADIC in New York, Mike Driscoll, and the former ADIC in New York, Bill Sweeney, who, over a separate case in the Trump witch hunt, they betrayed me. And, they, and that hurt. They were my friends. So, and then one there, time I got faced and I said, I just basically, I said, you motherfucking cock sucking assholes <laughs> more, than, more than once, but, uh, <laughs> like, like you do. Yeah. And I'll, I would say it again. If I, if I was in their presence, I'd do it again. Well, maybe not. I think I got my point across. They know now. Um, are you at liberty to discuss the circumstances that was going on there? Uh, no, I don't want to discuss the circumstances that individual, who was being investigated. Nothing came of it. Um, okay. The grand jury voted not to indict, and it, it really disrupted his and a lot of other people's lives. 
So we're going to let sleeping dogs lie on that. We'll just go ahead and say that it is very uncommon that you get a no indictment, that you get um, no true bill for an, when you bring a case to the grand jury. That's actually pretty amazing. Uh, Without knowing anything else about it, that that's very most agents that I know when they go in front of a grand jury, they're 100 percent for indictments. They get true bills. Well, this individual was arrested anyway. Got it. So but I, I really it's going to hurt him and his family and they suffered a lot and I'm not going to bring it back into that's the fair. Yeah, just just that alone is really interesting and strange um, that that would be the case. All right. So. Isn't that always the case? Always. Always. Uh, I was in a proper once in the Eastern District. Yeah, I was in a proper once in the Eastern District, and the AUSA handled all the questioning because the two SAs that were there, they had they knew they screwed up with me um, because they had emailed the subpoena to show up, but my lawyer scheduled a proper instead. Uh, so it was two different SAs and um, special agents. We should tell that to your audience. I, I didn't think about that. Um, and they did not say a peep. So it has been my experience that during questioning like that, sometimes the agents have a question or two to ask. These two didn't. I think they were given order because I had screamed at Bill and Mike and I'm like, what? they had an ASAC, some a some guy who's just an ASAC named George Kuzami. I just found out his name. George Kuzami was ASAC a criminal on the public corruption squad, called me, screamed at me, denied me a medical accommodation, told me I couldn't get a ride to 26 Fed to do an interview so the essays could uh, file their 302s because I was on a pick line and just had a surgery. And all he did was scream at me and intimidate me and force me into the position of having to hire a lawyer. So I had called Bill Sweeney and I said, Bill, who is this guy George screaming at me? I already arranged it with Mike Driscoll that, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to let your agents interview me, but I can't get there safely and, and home safely without somebody to drive me. And, you know, somebody needs to, and somebody had offered to. And, uh, the, and George Kuzami, who screamed at me, said, I'm not letting him in. He is not allowed in this building. I'm like, to sit on the bench in the hallway? And it's another law enforcement officer, another SAC, as a matter of fact. So is this all over the Charlie stuff that the interview was going to be? Over? Oh, just the uh, Trump, the Trump guy. Got it. This was the thing that is uh, that got you on the on the outs with them. All right. Well, you you're clearly involved with a bunch of stuff. How how much is is this kind of shenanigans going on? I think this is the picture that people are, are never going to see unless they know. Most people have no idea what SESers, the senior executive service of the FBI, looks yeah, like, how they do business. Yeah. Well, in my book, I have a glossary of what the, um, you know, what the acronyms are. Um, tell me about, tell me about culture, because you're, you're dealing with them on a social level. Tell me about the culture of these people in, in public. Like I, I saw them professionally, but I never saw them socially. They're just like normal people. Um, I mean, I've socialized with them for years, uh, you know. They, they, I mean, you know, there's a lot of uh, New York-based law enforcement foundations and a lot of donors at, like, the billionaire level. Uh, so we would all go to different fundraisers together. Um, somebody died, we'd all go to the funeral together. If there was, um, you know, a party, a retirement party, we'd, we'd all attend. Um, but the SESers, um, they're, not, they're nothing special. I mean, I dated one and lived with him for years. So before Charlie, um, and I lived with Charlie. I mean, they're just normal people. 
And you got to remember, they're not making any more money than, I mean, well, that's what I want to get into the money. Can we talk about, um, yeah, you know, you how know much what? they make. I know how much they make. We talk about it a little bit. I know what they make. Do you know about diversity bonuses? I'm familiar with bonuses that they get, but specifically diversity. Talk about it. Well, I have heard, and I'm not sure if this is true, that uh, the SES is if they promote anybody who's not a white straight guy, will get a diversity bonus in his paycheck. But I don't know if that's true. Uh, my understanding was is their recruitment for sure that they get some of their markings for the uh, like the end of year, the field, the office uh, health measure metrics is based on diversity I stuff. Yeah, it's just I don't know if it's true. It could be like one of those things. It was a rumor that just got to me somehow. Um, as far as the money, you know, these these guys, a lot of them are commuting back and forth from D.C. where their families are to New York if they're put into that um, SES position here from headquarters. And they're, you know, playing by the rules. They're doing the right thing. I, I know a couple of them. Um, I really never met a dirty agent before. I've met some douchebag agents, but never a dirty one. And we're talking about SES two. They're making what two fifteen, something like that. Is that about right? Plus a bonus. In that range, I think closer to two. Okay, so, maybe it's two hundred five or something. And then I know the top that the SES three is like a two thirty five. I want to say, but it's not more than that. That's the top of the paycheck. I know that, but um, it, yeah. This is but, this is not big money in New York. No. So no. How, how did how did Charlie live? You said you were living with him. Where were you guys? Like, what kind of place was this? It was a uh, garden apartment in Brooklyn. It was rented by his wife's cousin, Bob. Bob had sublet the apartment to Charlie. And so I had met Bob. I, this is another reason why I thought everything was on the up and up, because I had met, you know, his wife's cousin and was introduced basically as Charlie's girlfriend. I was obviously living there. I mean, there was no indication that he was keeping me a secret. So, especially from his wife's family. Um, it's so bizarre on every level. <laughs> I know. You know what? We're going to walk inside because my battery's dying. Okay, fair enough. And you're going to murder me, but we can keep talking. Let's have a, let's have a, let's have a walk tour of where I live. So there's some flowers. So, and, and this is because your house burned down. This is because my house burns down. I now live in a hotel. Um, and I'll tell you the truth. I love it. So, uh, yeah, you're yeah. just telling us about, uh, you, you, he didn't hide you. When I grew up. You wanted, you wanted to be what, Eloise? No, he didn't hide me. I always wanted to be Eloise when I grew up. Who wouldn't? <laughs> so, <laughs> My girls read the story. Um, That's funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, Charlie didn't hide me from his wife's cousin. It was his wife's cousin, Bob Garvey, who uh, rented the apartment in uh, Brooklyn where we lived. So I, I had no reason to believe I should be sneaking around. Um... And the fact that it was so easy for him to lie, I don't know. I'm just grossed out. I, I, I see him on the news and I kind of like get this, oh, how could I? So it, it, it's so course, interesting because like I know it. What? Well, they, they used to do a lot of these screenings. I mean, obviously, there's a the polygraph that you get. Uh, there's a financial disclosure you do when you work in the in the in the CI world, which I did um, at a much, much lower level, obviously, on the on the brick agent side of things. But they're always looking for the next Robert Hansen. And the things they worry about Robert Hansen is money problems, people who are obsessed with money, weird hours, weird connections, um, marital infidelity, and uh, and casual lying. These are like the big flags that they, they're, that's what Robert Hansen taught the FBI. 
right? And I, am I the only one that thinks this is so crazy? Enough. But you know what, though? It's like, I don't think the FBI needs to feel all that bad about being fooled or the rest of the law enforcement and intel communities. He fooled us all. It doesn't matter that he fooled me. Who the hell am I? I'm a total nobody. I'll be fine. He might have done damage to assets of ours in the field. Could you imagine? I'm Could sure. you imagine damaging our NATO allies, our other friends in the world? You know, just the the theft, the money laundering, the bribes. It's just, and I'm sorry, I don't feel bad for him. People feel bad for him. They feel bad for his wife. And I don't feel bad, I feel bad for his kids. That's it. After what his wife did to me, lying about me in court like that, costing me that much money, I, uh, I have no love for her. But, uh, you know, I, I have an axe to grind with her, but that's over now. I did that Daily Mail article and criticized her stupid Instagram posts. But um, <laughs> Yes, and that, but, uh, that thing no, is in, just, enraged um, ex-lover called, and they have a subtitle, Hell Hath No Fury, which is pretty strong. <laughs> they, they went big the on that one. I was not enraged. I, no, I, I don't think, think so either. They, they, they just use adjectives, but I, no, I wasn't enraged. By then I was over it. I'm like, eh. You know, I mean, I had I knew he was getting arrested. I knew it was coming. I got the subpoena like two years before. It, it just, you know, I knew all of this was going on. It, it wasn't like I was surprised. And, um, and then when they weren't making any movement on it, I leaked my subpoena. I had uh, spoken to Mattathias Schwartz at Business Insider. I gave him a copy of my subpoena and he printed it. And there is an article uh, that predates uh, the articles since Charlie has been arrested, which indicates and reveals that he's under investigation. Nobody picked up on it. So, which, right. Cause this, when this story broke, it was kind of, it was kind of like the dam breaking a little bit. Yeah. Uh, how long do you think the FBI knew about what he was up to? Do you think it was after he retired that they figured it out? Oh no, they knew before. And they let him stay there. I, I believe so. Why do you think that was? Because I know that the Brits tipped them off in January of 2018. And he was there until the end of the year, give or take, right? October, September. Or September. September. So, and and how about the money stuff? There's money in a brown paper bag. Can, I've read this in a story. That's where I first saw your name. Can you tell that story? And yeah, when you, when you yeah. saw this, yeah, we uh, woke up one morning and there was a like a you know those black bags with gold writing on them that liquor stores give out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there was one kind of by, like, the back door where we kept our shoes right next to, like, a futon. And I, you know, I saw it, and I looked, picked it up, and I looked inside, and I'm like, the fuck is this for? You know, I thought they were flash rolls. And I know... Tell I people what a flash roll is first. What? Tell people what a flash roll is. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so, a flash roll is what an undercover agent will use to make a deal to prove that he has money to go further into business with somebody like a drug trafficker or a gun runner. Um, and if it weren't flash rolls, I thought, I, I just thought they were flash rolls for one of his agents and that he was just didn't feel like schlepping back and forth to work. And I understand that. I know people break rules. It wasn't, it wasn't that alarming to me. Uh, but then he said, no, I won it on a baseball game. And I'm like, you can't gamble. I'm like, you, you gambled $100,000? He told me it was 100000 Uh I later learned from the indictments that it could possibly have been 80000 But that in total, there was two twenty-five, 
Well, let me tell you, with the amount of times he had said he was going out to meet Agron, it's 10 times that. That's what I was going to ask. Do you, th do you think he has money stashed somewhere? Yes. Isn't that interesting? You think it's 10 times? You think he was in the he was in the uh, the millions, the low millions? No, not billions. Millions. No, millions. That's what I'm saying. Yep. Yeah. Millions. A couple um, million dollars. Two million. Was, yeah. Yeah. And if he was taking $85,000 and a hit, $80,000, that's kind of what I'm reading. I think you're probably reading the same stuff. That's transactional espionage money. That's yeah. what that looks like. Would you agree? Well, espionage is the word that is being left out of this conversation, which bothers me a lot because just because it's money laundering and they're not classifying it as espionage. Yeah, you're saying it's money laundering, but for what? What is he what is he laundering this money? How is he getting the money? What's the what's the service, right? What's the quid pro quo? Apparently they set up uh, apparently they falsely Okay, so apparently from what I understand in uh, the case in Southern is that they he and his co-defendant Sergey, who we had socialized with, uh, they had falsified documents for uh FARA registrations, um maybe uh, a couple of uh, corporations. I really did not read it um, all that carefully because I figured this is all going to come out in court. He's going to get a plea. I mean, when I got my grand jury subpoena, I knew how this was going to end. It's going to end in a plea deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just common sense. Um, I was surprised he got bail. Um, that, yeah, that surprised me. Um, I mean, especially since there's two different cases and the charges of this magnitude. I mean, the Russians, if I had any idea, I would have turned them in. And once I pieced it together, after we broke up, I did. And nobody did anything. So, when was that? November 28, no, 2019. So that is about a year after his retirement, a little bit more. Yeah, I... I emailed bill and uh bill fbi was investigating in the trump witch hunt somebody that i uh, they shouldn't have been um and it was somebody i'm close with and i just kind of like went off on bill and i in an email and i'm just like bill you know instead of wasting your time on the, all these trump people that you're trying to lock up why don't you look into charlie mcgonigal and his extra affair with extramarital affair with me that you witnessed and what the hell is he doing in Albania meeting with the prime minister of that country all the time? I had no idea the rest of the Balkans were involved. I certainly had no idea Russia was involved. I mean, I wish I had known. I would I would have loved to be a CI on that. <laughs> Probably would have been lucrative too. <laughs> what? That would have been lucrative. <laughs> I would have done it for free. Out of yeah, still my country. They still would have wanted to pay you a little bit, but uh, they would have got you like a nice, some nice shoes. <laughs> we had some really yeah. weird people that wouldn't accept money. And so they would give them nice gifts. They'd buy, you know, custom leather work and stuff. So yeah. but we were just saying a second ago, $85,000. There's, there's a certain amount of money that's too little for yeah. espionage for secrets. And there's a certain amount of money that's too much. And it has to be something yeah. else. I don't know. $85,000 is right in the middle. It's right where it's got to be. It's the amount of money that we see transactional uh, espionage, secrets, access. This is what people pay, whether they be Chinese or Russian or you know other countries, which some of them are half friendly with us. That's the kind of money they pay. It's like high five figures. And so you're talking about the kind of money in that bag. And I'm just giving this as an awareness thing. 
we would actually look at people's suspicious activity reports on a regular basis. We come in and we'd look at them and we go, that's too much money to be what we think it is. It's something else. That that amount of Keep money. And, and, and you think that there were a lot of transactions. They were far more than $225,000 worth. Can you kind of talk about why you think that is? They traveled. Yes. They traveled together to Europe on at least three occasions. Um, he actually invited me on one of those trips to Vienna, where uh, reportedly he had met with Oleg Deripaska. And thank God I didn't go. Thank God I had a double vasectomy scheduled. And uh, my passport was expired. And I don't even like traveling. Um, but he was like, look, it'll get your mind off this surgery. You should come with me. We'll have fun. It's a beautiful city. He made no mention of anybody else coming. I thought it was just the two of us. Uh, he didn't mention any traveling companions. He framed it as a vacation for me. Um, and uh, I do know, you know, well, truthfully, I do know better than to go to Vienna with the head of CI and FBI, but because um, <laughs> I'm not retarded. <laughs> but, um, but uh, CI is not uh, an area of expertise of mine. I'm, you know, just, it's, it, I know a very, very minimal bit about it. So, um, yeah, I'm, and, I'll, you like, know, that, that's your wheelhouse. It, well, it is, and it isn't. It's just, I, I didn't deal with anybody that was in the SAS that would be running around with flash money. That's bizarre to me is the idea. They had, you know, white funds where they would capture money and put it in a safe. And we were so tight about moving money for operational stuff. I cannot imagine the idea of anybody running around with that kind of cash. But, uh, you know, you write your own rules. Do you ever think that he had any fear of being caught? No. No. I mean, even after the article came out where I leaked the subpoena, before my name was attached to this in Business Insider, Mattathias Schwartz wrote it. The New York Post picked it up. A bunch of other outlets picked it up. He got hired by another company, owned by another Russian. Apparently under a very obscure process, which I have no idea what that's about. But, um, you know, Brookfield, I probably fired him as soon as the news came out that he was uh, being investigated. And there is no group of people in the world that is going to be keeping this a secret. They ran it out of LA. Uh, and uh, one of the venues is DC. The other is Southern New York. Uh, uh, the investigating office is LA. I'm thinking, people talk. Like, we all knew who got subpoenas because we all told, told each other. So. Bizarre. Uh, totally bizarre world. And, and here you are basically living his second life or maybe his first life and his, his primary life was something else. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. know. It's hard to wrap your head around something like that kind of between he's happy to betray his wife. He's happy to betray you because you're obviously being used in all of this. And then the last piece of it is, is that it sounds like he betrayed this country. You have any he betray his country. Tell me what you think was going on. So, you know, I had actually read in a book once the book is called the butcher by, um, Phil Carlo, it's about a mob hitman named Tommy Karate Patera. And the Patera case, uh, that was my cousin's case. And so, which is why I read the book. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, there is a segment in that book where um, the DEA agents involved, his grandfather had emigrated here from Ireland to go work in Montana in mines, backbreaking work, but just loved America just loved being here. And as soon as World War I broke out, this gentleman had said, 
I'm going back to New York to sign up and join the army. America's enemies are my enemies. And that's how I feel. I took a lot away from that sentence in that book. America's enemies are my enemies. You betray my country, you're betraying me. You betray my friends, you're betraying me. So, and, 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 and I don't hear that word being, I don't hear betrayal. I don't hear treasonous talk, although I hear it about Trump. You know, yeah. I, I don't hear any of that stuff. How do, what do you make of that? It's the media. I mean, I think the media are enemies of the American people. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, I don't like hearing these bad things about people that I admire and know. I think Donald Trump is great. Um, I think he had a wonder, I mean, maybe he can be an asshole, but you know, we've all got our moments, but, uh, he was, he had great policies. I want those policies back. They kept us safe, especially when you're talking about Chinese poison coming through trafficked here by Mexican cartels who are controlling our border and decimating a population, a generation of Americans with either the precursor drugs to methamphetamine, the uh, cloning that they're doing of uh, pharmaceutical fentanyl. Um, and now we have xylazine, which is Trank, which is, you know, that's the, these are not pharmaceutical drugs they're putting together. These are binding ingredients mixed with poison. And that's what they're giving out to kids. That is a big problem. Why doesn't anybody care about that? Why doesn't anybody care that the head of counterintelligence for the Federal Bureau of Investigation is out there shaking down the Balkans, giving away U.S. resources, betraying us, betraying our allies, laundering money, and then going to Palm Springs on fucking vacation, wearing Gucci and Chanel and dressing his own goddamn family up, like they're some kind of billionaires and then flaunting it all over the internet. This is insane. It's upside down. Yeah. I mean, I feel bad for his kids. I really do. I don't feel bad for the wife. She should know better. And he certainly knew what he was doing. Him and his stupid slicked back haircut. I'm sick of seeing it. <laughs> it does look, it does look, uh, it's not my favorite look. Let me, let me pose one more question to you. Sure. Okay. You just mentioned fentanyl. You mentioned trafficking. You mentioned drug cartels yeah. and all the things that are going on that we know about the southern border. We know that Charlie McGonigal was involved in Albanian uh, shakedowns and maybe others in the Balkans. And we also know that the Sinaloa cartel and other cartels have strong footprints in those areas, particularly in Albania. They are, Tirana is the drug capital of, uh, of the Balkans. I mean, it, Tirana, Albania, Tirana is the capital of Albania. Um, the Albanians are heavily into the drug trafficking with, uh, I don't know if it's just Mexican Mexico cartels and the Chinese or if they've got the Colombians involved. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I talk with a gentleman, a good friend of mine, his name is Derek Maltz. I don't know if you know him. I know the name. DEA. You know the name. Yeah. Um, if you're going, and you don't have to put this on our podcast, but if you're going to pursue anything on that topic, uh, I'll give you Derek's phone number. He is the go-to guy for anything having to do with this. He let us OD. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I, we're connected on Twitter now that I think about it. We've we've DM'd. Yeah. Yeah, you want Derek on your show. You don't want me for this. You got it. So, well, my um, question is this. But I know enough to say. Yeah, does Charlie have something to trade on that front that is going to be worth a plea deal that's going to get him something better? Or is he just getting a, a pass because he's a bureau exec? 
I guess we'll have to see. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's getting a pass because he's from the view. I think, uh, I think they're trying to make an example out of him. I mean, they're trying to tout like it was our agents who locked him up. And I'm like, yeah, okay. It yep. was your agency that promoted him. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's just, you know, I've had issues with the FBI for a long time since the nineties. I mean, no offense. I, I know you didn't know any better. Didn't hurt my feelings. You should go to DEA or the marshals or the secret service. I mean, you could have had the best career as an agent. I'm doing something more important. I think God has a plan. I think, uh, you're right. I believe you, that too. You know, there's a, there's an instinct about all those things, right? No, I'm just kidding with you. I so, know it doesn't, I, it's, it's just, it's a great question though, because it's like, how do you even answer that? Other than there's more going on here. Who, who could know why you would be in the situation you're in with the information you have and the background you have? None of us. I mean, God's plan. Yeah. We have to find it out after it happens. And then we go, oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I'm a big believer in uh, God's plan. Like, I just, I accept it. It's, I'm not afraid to die. I kind of feel like, you know, it, it's up to God. Only God decides. So, And you have to adopt that mindset in this line of work because I've lost count of how many people I know who've been killed in, in the line undercover KIA lost limbs, suffer PTSD, blew their own brains out. Yeah. There's a lot of that, uh, suicide and, and, uh, difficulties. People don't tolerate the job well, or they do, and then they don't know what else to do when they get out of it and all that. So a lot of it, I think is ruminating. Ruminating is very, very, very destructive. You can't woulda, coulda, shoulda your stuff, your way out of these things. I mean, I've tried it with Charlie. I woulda, coulda, shoulda my way through this whole relationship. And I'm thinking, you know what? It happened. It happened for a reason. I don't need to know what that reason was, but God put him in my life for something. And, you know, it, it, it only had bad effects on me. Uh, the only good thing that can come out of this is that maybe, I'll recoup enough money that I've spent on legal fees when I sell a book. I mean, if, if, if I didn't need the money, I wouldn't even bother with a book. <laughs> but I think people will want to know the story. So when it's out there, you let us know too, and we'll, uh, we'll boost the presence of it. I look forward to that. Thank you for giving a bunch of your time today. Even with our connection troubles, we'll we'll edit it all in clean. Sorry, I have such a crappy connection. It, but, it is what it is. And I also want to wish you good luck on CNN. I hope you uh, I hope you do that well, and I hope that uh, they are uh, kind and they are they are hospitable when they when they interview you. Thank you. You have been watching the Kyle Serafin Show stream live from Liberty Hill, Texas, here in Central Texas, America. We do have a lot of people to thank, and we want to thank you most specifically for watching the show. For the five-star reviews we have, we'll read another one tomorrow morning, as you are familiar with. And I want to say thanks to my technical producer, Ryan Matta. You can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Matta Media, M-A-T-T-A, or find him at Ryan Matta on True Social. He's on Instagram as well under, I think, Shots by Matta. 
M-A-T-T-A. Thanks so much to Ryan, who did a lot of great work on this. We had a bad connection and some tough things, so he put some overlays in. I think made this this video really work, and I hope you guys did appreciate that. And he will be joining us again, my hope is, first thing in the morning tomorrow for our regular showtime. Uh, folks, we do want to thank you. Make sure that you leave us a five-star review on Apple, on Spotify, on iTunes, on any of the places that you are listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, where you can join us and hit that like button, subscribe on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Thanks to my guest again, Allison Guerriero, who joined us to tell her side of the story from New York uh, in a difficult housing situation as she is in right now. As you heard, house burned down. So we are really appreciative that she took the time out to sit down and talk to us. And I think you might see her if you watch CNN uh, on this evening as well. So uh, thanks again. We'll see you in the morning. Have a great night and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.